Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Today we're going to talk to a woman who has had Crohn's disease for 25 years and has finally found some relief using cannabis. Crohn's is defined as a chronic inflammatory disease of the intestines. Signs and symptoms include abdominal pain, diarrhea, fever, weight loss, among others. Joining us from Regina, Saskatchewan, is Kelly Shada. Kelly not only takes cannabis, but operates Kells, a non-profit corporation that offers a wide range of all-natural medicinal cannabis-based products. Kelly, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Ian? I'm great. Kelly, how painful was your Crohn's disease, or has your Crohn's disease been over these last 25 years? A 10 plus. 10 plus. A 10 plus daily. And... uh, you were on painkillers, were you not? I have been on so many narcotics, um, Ian. It's been just a crazy road the last 25 years. I started with Demerol. Um, I would be up to 40 Demerol a day if I wasn't in the hospital. I spent more time in the hospital than I did at home when my, while my children were growing up. The last five years, it was fentanyl patch, 150 micrograms. Um, long-acting Oxycontin, breakthrough hydromorphone, and Zopacone to sleep. Wow. It sounds like you couldn't get through a day without painkillers. No. No, I wouldn't have been able to work or take care of my children. I wouldn't have been able to have any quality of life without them, you know. So mm-hmm. before I found that all I was lucky there was something, but I still, it didn't control the pain the way that my disease is under control now because it was just a Band-Aid. Yeah. What was the lowest point for you during this period? Oh, there was lots of them. Um, The lowest point for me probably was uh, spending five months in the hospital, two bowel resections, having the doctors tell me that I was an addict just looking for, um, you know, medication like narcotics. Because after a bowel resection, usually it's two to four years before a normal co-patient, before it comes back again, uh, mine had returned within months. So I was always looked at like I was drug-seeking. Mm-hmm. You know, until you found a doctor that was finally on board and realized, okay, everybody's different. So that was a really hard time. And, and it's still hard, you know, when my girls talk today and say, well, Mom, remember, but, oh, no, you were probably in the hospital then. Yeah, so that's where I spent most of my time. How much of your intestine, small intestine, did they remove? Well, the first Mallory section, they figure it was around six feet, but they wasn't sure because it was just a massive ball. So they're thinking it was between eighteen and twenty-four feet that I've lost now. Eighteen and twenty-four. Eighteen mu- to twenty-four. Yeah. yeah, I've had five Mallory sections. How much do you have left? Not much. <laughs> yeah. I have what's called short bowel syndrome now. 
So it's very hard to keep weight on because when I eat, it goes right through. But once I found the cannabis and started using the oil in January, so it's only been, you know, seven some months, Mm -hmm. um, I'm up now, my weight is stabilized, I'm eating, I'm doing amazing. I'm going to the bathroom one or two times a day, not 25. My whole life's turned around. So you must have been malnourished during uh, the previous period before taking cannabis. One of my um, hospital stays when my husband rushed me to emergency. I had no reflexes left. I was so malnourished. And they said if I wouldn't have got in that day, I would have went into cardiac arrest. I had no potassium, was so low, my mm-hmm. heart wouldn't have, have stayed working. Wow. What, uh, what prompted you to try cannabis? Well, I have been on uh, the biologics, like uh, Remicade and Humira, um, the methahextrate, that uh, needle that you take, mm-hmm. cancer patients take it, so many biologic drugs and, and Crohn's, uh, per se, medication, with terrible side effects. So in 2010, I started researching different ways that Crohn's could be um, helped, and I came across cannabis. But I couldn't find the oil. I didn't know where to get it, what to do. I even had people offer to make it for me. But, you know, it was the stigma of marijuana still. I was mm-hmm. stuck there. It was like, well, you can't buy something from the street. You know, so I was, was, was really scared. And then this January, I found a dispensary that had the oil. I started taking it. And this is where I am today. How soon after taking cannabis oil did you notice a difference? Within weeks. Mm-hmm. Within weeks, I started dropping off my um, levels of the narcotics I was on. I started feeling better. I had more energy. Um, and that's when I decided I need to start educating people on how this can help. And it brought me to opening my store. And now I just, every day is amazing. What, uh, what are your... Do- months it took, uh, yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, what do your doctors think of it? I went to the, my gastroenterologist yesterday. was my first appointment since telling him what I was doing. Yeah. And, you know, when I told him what I was going to do instead of taking the new biologic and Tivio, I think he sat at the desk and stared at me for about 10 minutes. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> and he was like, okay, we'll give you a few months. And, you know, I've had the Intivio program call me over the last four months probably seven times. I believe it's a call center, and they're like, are you ready to start the program yet? I'm like, nope, nope. And I went and seen him yesterday, and he can't believe how amazing I'm doing. Yeah. He's in awe. And I told him, you know, I'm having a huge event here in Regina on December 3rd. Um, Colton Turner is coming and his family to speak. I don't know if you know Colton Turner. He also suffers no. from Crohn's. He's a young advocate in the States. He speaks everywhere on Illegally Healed because mm-hmm. he uses cannabis. Okay. His family moved to, Cal- to Colorado just to help save his life. Yeah. Do you know him, Corey? And, um, I don't know the him personally. Are, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. His story is amazing. Yeah, tell so us the doctors you... there are going to, uh, I'm going to take the invitations and hopefully they will all come and listen and maybe people can start with cannabis instead of ending with cannabis. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, your doctor's reaction, because I think doctors are in a, a very um, difficult situation in dealing with um, 
a medicine that governments have declared illegal. And all of their training uh, involves dealing with pharmaceuticals. And so when you upset their paradigm, uh, some of them are accepting of it. And others, as we've talked to a a number of of people on this program, their doctor just gets completely um, unconcerned about what they're doing. And uh, some some of them even get angry. Mm -hmm. Very. Uh, Like the stories I have come in daily, some doctors have made them leave their office. Some are like, no, won't even discuss it. And, you know, others are calling my office, Ian. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, I had a call from a neurosurgeon here in Regina. His nurse is coming down to get our paperwork, and they're going to start prescribing for their patients. Great. I have three other doctors here in Regina that fax um, prescriptions to us, call us. Uh, cancer patients, I have a couple of their doctors that are on board with us. You know, we speak back and forth. I'm getting amazing reception here in the city. Yeah, that's great. In uh, doing a bit of reading uh, about Crohn's disease uh, last night, I came across this statement. Let me read it to you. It says, there are no medications or surgical procedures that can cure Crohn's disease. Treatment options help with symptoms, maintain remission, and prevent relapse. And That's what conventional medicine thinks. Now that you've been on cannabis, do you agree? Well, I agree with those medications. But I don't know if my Crohn's is in remission or gone. I can only say that this is the first time in 25 years. It's so hard to explain, but I told the doctor and my husband, you know, and my friends, that every morning I wake up, it's like there used to be something in my abdomen and and it's gone. It's just empty. Mm. And, you know, after living like that for so many years, I I wait. I get up in the morning because usually the waves would come. Yeah. and, And it doesn't happen anymore. I really believe that, well, I know my, it's in remission for sure. I'm, I have my fingers crossed that it's cured. Have other Crohn's uh, patients contacted you about using cannabis? Daily. Daily. Yep. So many. And, you know, every time I share another story of a Crohn's patient, or it, I have more calls. There's so many people out there with IBS, Crohn's, colitis, and, and they're getting on board with trying something because none of the medications they're giving are working. Kelly, can I ask, um, are you on high THC or high CBD or a blend or what exactly are you taking? What do I take? I take the THC and the CBD oil. So I take a rice-sized piece of each of the oil morning and night. So you take them together? And I used to take two. I take them together. Okay, but they're two separate oils? They're two separate oils. Okay. Do you know the THC content? Yep. The THC is 77.4, and the CBD content is 43.95. Great. Thank you. 77.4. That's uh, quite high, isn't it? Is it, Corey? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Is you know, I mean, I, I would have no problems saying to somebody who had cancer here, yeah. take this. Yeah. Yes, and that's like, like I said, I take a, a maintenance dose now, per se, right? The right size piece. Mm-hmm. Um, cancer patients, they end up taking 60 grams over a period of time to help their cancer. Yeah. Did you get high the first time you took it? Uh, Not the oil, but the chocolate. I was using two squares of chocolate to get off my narcotics. Yeah. 
and I did have that psychoactive effect, but I tolerated it. <laughs> yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that some people who are gravely ill, uh, they have cancer, uh, they may even have months to live, are so apprehensive about getting high. It's, oh, yeah. Do you have a lot of people have, ask that uh, question? Oh, I do. And you know what? I have had people stop the treatment, only taking a half a grain of rice-sized piece of THC because they said, I can't do it, I'm, too, I'm, I'm getting too high. Well, I always say to them, what do you think you're doing on fentanyl and dilaudid and morphine, etc.? Right. You know, when I started this journey, like I said, I was on 150 microgram, the oxy, the hydromorphone, everything. No one ever questioned me on anything. Driving, you know, being with my grandchildren, yes. working, nothing. As soon as I started this, I started getting the questions. Kelly, did you have your chocolate today? Yeah. Well, are you going to be okay to drive? Yeah. Yeah. Or are you going to be okay to watch the kids? I was like, you guys never asked me this question when I was taking copious amounts of narcotics. Mm-hmm. But now you have a problem because I'm taking a 20 milligram square of chocolate? Yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting you say that because uh, I'm going to read a piece in the program today that uh, was put out by a website called Weed Facts, and it is all, um, it's about a number of studies in the United States, and uh, a 2003 case-controlled study found that marijuana use increased the odds of being in a fatal crash by 83%, but uh, alcohol increase the odds of being in, in a crash by 2,200%. Exactly. So well, it, I know now, you know, on my maintenance dose, I, I don't have any psychoactive effect. I could probably walk the line any, you know, better than someone that has never had anything in their system before. Yeah. and yeah, what, but When I was on my narcotics, no doctor ever told me I couldn't drive or I couldn't you know, do anything I wanted to do. Yeah. Kelly, when did you open uh, Kells, your nonprofit corporation in Regina? Um, we opened the doors August 15th. Oh, just this year? So yeah. Yes, just this year. And it's a medical cannabis dispensary? Yes. Yeah, so you have to have a doctor's prescription to come here. That was going to be my, my question. My demographic has been about 50 to my oldest patient is 94 years old. Ninety-four. Ninety-four. That's fantastic. It is. You know, every day I come in, I'm just in awe of, it's so amazing. I never thought at this age I would love coming to work. I mm. thought I'd be retired. I look forward every day to come in here. It's really, uh, when, when we talk about uh, cannabis and marijuana, I mean, we like to use the term cannabis because marijuana is, I think, a pejorative term that people use right. for stoners. People want to get high, yeah. and uh, but uh, cannabis is, is really, uh, to get people to have a better understanding of it, I think, and uh, you can help me with this, uh, both Corey and uh, Kelly, it's really education. People have to be educated that this plant was used for thousands and thousands and thousands of years until 1937 when it was demonized by uh, the U.S. government. Exactly. Yes. Very true. So that's what we're trying to do uh, on this show. Do you make the products yourself or do you just resell? 
I don't make anything. Okay. No, I don't make anything, and anything that I help people with um, all comes from a reputable group, reputable group in, in um, B.C. British Columbia here. Okay. Yep. And tell me about some of the patients who have come into your business and the relief uh, that they've got from uh, from seeking cannabis. Um, I'll tell you about a couple. I have uh, a family that came in. Their 83-year-old mother um, was suffering in a care home, terrible chronic pain. They tried all the medications, and she was laying in a bed. If they got her up, they had to put her in a wheelchair. They came to see me. They got a prescription from the doctor, came to see me. We started her on um, some little 2.5-milligram gummies that I had specially made for my patients because I believe in microdosing, especially when someone has never tried before and that they need constant pain relief. You know, instead of going up and down, you know, having the highs and lows, we want them to feel good across the board. So we um, started on those, and as well as the the capsules and the MJ cream. They came back to see me just a week ago. She had been on it for three weeks. At the care home, they refused to give her the medication. They had to go in and give it to her themselves. She's now up and walking. She's got a bounce in her step. They were laughing. She'll probably be driving down here next week to get her medication herself. Like, she's doing awesome. And now the girls at the care home are giving the medication to her themselves. The family doesn't have to go in anymore. Mm. Is there, I have a yeah, 76-year-old uh, woman who is suffering lung And she now is, um, on the, been on the treatment for a month and a half. She's eating. She's gaining weight. We're just... Sorry, someone must be trying to cut into my line. Yeah, we're just waiting she, to hear uh, on, uh, she had a, a scan done, and we're waiting here. She's coming today at 2 o'clock mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, what they've seen and, and how she's doing. And she had lung cancer. She has lung cancer, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Kelly, when the Canadian government legalizes marijuana next May, uh, what do you think that will mean for your business? Well, I'm hoping, you know, to... Be able to keep doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that's what I'm hoping for. You know, I focus on the medicinal side, and you know, when the recreational comes down, what they decide to do, I think, is going to be at provincial level. Um, I'm hoping that I can just keep on running like I'm running. Kelly, what's the uh, general reaction of the public to you having opened up a shop there? And also, uh, what about the law? What are they are they saying anything to you? Well, I can tell you, Corey, when I decided to open, um, I have five grandchildren, uh, two daughters. I lost my son to addiction last year. Mm-hmm. I decided if I'm going to open this, I need to be as open and um, transparent, transparent as possible. I went to the mayor. I went to the Regina City Police, and I also went to the RCMP. I told them exactly what I was doing. I took packaging of products. I said, um, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is my address. I even got the Regina City Police to open a file because I figure I need to have them know that's just the way I am. And the public has been amazing. When I opened, uh, I did have the the news crews come here and leader post, and Mm -hmm. I didn't turn them away because I thought, you know, I've been as transparent as possible. I'm not going to turn them away. The, the public has been amazing. I had the, 
inspector of criminal investigations came here. Um, I had a talk with him for about 40 minutes in the store. Very positive. I don't know, you know, I can't say what will happen tomorrow. I can only know I come in every day and I know I'm working in a gray area, but I believe in what I do. Yeah, it's great. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's good for you. And uh, good luck with your Crohn's disease. And uh, hopefully it's it'll be a thing of the past in a few months. And uh, you won't have to worry about that anymore. Exactly. That would be so nice. Yeah. Kelly, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to you, too, Corey. I follow you all the time. Oh, do you? It's great yes. speaking with you, Kelly. And thanks for all your efforts in getting the word out there. You know, I Thank think you. I think what, as much as I can. I think once we've helped one person, it's Ian and I have talked about this. It becomes addictive. Exactly. Oh, it does. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you have people come in your office and they're hugging you and crying, and and you've changed their family life, it's a great feeling. Yeah, it is. It is. Kelly, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Take the best of care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. That's Kelly Shada. She's from uh, Regina, Saskatchewan, and uh, in August she started her own uh, company, a nonprofit corporation called Kells in Regina. Interesting woman, Kelly, uh, Corey. She was on a whack of painkillers. She sure was. Forty a day. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Okay, what uh, what I want to do now, uh, Corey, um, you haven't heard this, but it's very interesting. It's a fellow named Richard Stratton. He's an author, uh, he's been in jail, and he speaks out about uh, incarceration and marijuana. It's a, a very interesting talk. It was a TEDx talk at Fulton Street, and uh, I want to play it for listeners now because uh, it's very, very captivating. 35 years ago, I was the CEO of a vertically integrated international corporation and personally making millions of dollars a year, importing and distributing a natural, organic product that was in huge demand. I was a marijuana importer. I smuggled marijuana and hashish from around the world and brought it into the United States. The problem with this was, of course, it was illegal. The government saw me as a criminal and the government decided that they were going to shut down my operation. In 1982, I was arrested, and I was charged with importing marijuana and hashish, this natural, organic substance that came from a plant. They took me to trial twice, once in the District of Maine, where I had owned a horse farm with the author, Norman Mailer, and then again in New York. In Maine... I was sentenced to the maximum available under the law at that time, 15 years. When I got to New York, the government wasn't through with me. They charged me under the Continuing Criminal Enterprise Statute, known as the Kingpin Statute, with running a continuing criminal enterprise, the purpose of which was to import marijuana and hashish. Now I was facing a minimum of 10 years and up to life in prison with no possibility of parole. When I went to trial in New York, I decided that I was going to represent myself. Thus was the nature of my hubris, that I thought that I could actually speak to the jury and try to convince them that there was something wrong here. I had already been sentenced to 15 years in Maine. Why was the government now prosecuting me again and charging me with this kingpin statute when all we were talking about here was marijuana and hashish. 
So I decided to use what they call an affirmative defense. I said, yeah, it's true, I was a marijuana smoker. I was a marijuana dealer. I was a marijuana importer, and I was a marijuana distributor. But, you know, really, this second prosecution here in New York is really a vindictive prosecution that's designed to do one thing, and that is to force me to cooperate with the government and rat out my friends, my enemies, people that I have been involved with in the business. And the first and foremost person on the government's list was my mentor, my close friend, my co-owner of this farm up in Maine, Norman Mailer. Now, Mailer actually wasn't even involved in my criminal activity. He had nothing to do with it. Did he know what I did for a living? Yes. Did we own property together? Yes, we did. Therefore, Mailer had what the government calls guilty knowledge. Give us Mailer, they said, and you can walk. All I would have had to do is implicate Mailer and say, yeah, well, he knew what I was up to and we own property together. Therefore, he's guilty of conspiracy. I refused. I said, you know what? Forget about it. And with this, this defense that I had, I was actually making some progress. The jury, I think, was listening to me. They were becoming sympathetic to what I was talking about. But the judge decided that she didn't like what I was doing. She thought it was a red herring. And she said, I think you're trying to confuse the jury. She sent the jury out of the room and she said, Mr. Stratton, I don't want you to compete to continue using that defense. And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to allow you to call several of the witnesses that you have on your witness list, including Mr. Malin. Needless to say, I objected vociferously. I said, wait a minute, judge, you're stripping me of my defense. But it was too late. The judge had ruled, my defense was out, and certainly, lo and behold, I was convicted again. Now I was facing, as I said, life with no possibility of parole. So when I went in front of the judge, Judge Motley, I used to privately refer to her as Motley Crew. When I went in front of the judge, I gave an impassioned plea. And I said, you know, Judge, look, you heard the witnesses that testified against me. They all said, you know, Stratton was never involved in heroin, never involved in cocaine, even though the profits were exponentially greater. I, was, I stuck to marijuana and hashish. I was part of what was known as the hippie mafia. We believed in karma, we believed in nonviolence, we believed in bringing in a good product at a reasonable price. This is what I did, Judge. So what's the problem here? Why, are you, why is the government doing this to me? And she said, well, you know, Mr. Stratton, I agree with you. I don't think that marijuana is as dangerous a drug as cocaine and, and heroin. But, she said, you refused to cooperate with the government. You refused to inform on your friends, and the people who are still involved in this business out there. So in essence, the judge was actually proving my defense. And she said, therefore, I'm going to give you this sentence based on your refusal to cooperate with the government. And she said, 25 years in prison with no possibility of parole and six months because you defied me when you were not supposed to be talking about your defense and you spoke out of hand. So she gave me 25 years and six months in prison. Well, what happened? What happened really was that I had the advantage of being a reasonably well-educated white boy who could read and write with some facility. When I got to prison, I went to the prison library, the law library, and I started studying criminal law. And lo and behold, 
I found that, to my amazement, the law is all about language. It's words. This fascinated me as a writer and as someone who had thought a lot about it. I thought, man, this is incredible. Words locked me up. Continuing criminal enterprise, the kingpin statute, conspiracy. But words would set me free. And here's how that happened. I discovered that, yes, one can give someone less time for cooperating with the government, for snitching on other people. It's done all the time. Happens all the time. But you can't give someone more time for refusing to cooperate because then the sentence becomes coercive rather than punitive. I thought, wow, listen to this coercive rather than punitive. These were the words that were going to set me free. So I appealed my sentence back to Judge Motley, God bless her. She refused, she denied it. Then I wrote an appeal, and I appealed it to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that has jurisdiction over Judge Motley's court. And sure enough, the judges, the appellate judges, agreed. They said, of course, your sentence is illegal. They remanded me for resentencing before a new judge, and that judge gave me 10 years. So the difference was that I understood language, and I understood reading and writing. And all the time that I spent in prison, eight years, I came to the realization that so many of the young men and women who are locked up in this country are there because of a degree of illiteracy. They don't have the control of the language to understand that they're as much the victims of crime as the perpetrators. What happens is that these folks, their their language is the language of the streets. They don't have the language to fully comprehend all of the advantages that may be accessible to them if their language were better. And I started thinking about this, and I thought, man, it's really all about illiteracy. These folks just don't have the kind of education that I had, and they get swept up in this criminal justice system. They spend many, many years in prison. For what? Because we did not give them adequate educations to begin with. Years later, I served eight years in prison, actually, I got out in 1990. At that point, I became a filmmaker, a writer. I published a novel, several magazine stories. And I I made a bunch of documentaries for HBO about prison life, prison violence, prison culture. Then I actually worked on a TV show called Oz. It was all about prison. I, I worked on that show. And then I created my own TV show, which was called Street Time, about people coming out of prison on parole and having to deal with all of the challenges and the problems that you face as an ex-convict coming out onto the street. That show uh, was on Showtime for three years. Subsequently, since then, I've gone on to make a number of documentaries. And uh, I've worked in, in prison reform, I published a magazine called Prison Life Magazine that was created, written by, and produced by people who were locked up. And I thought deeply about how our whole view of marijuana has changed just during my lifetime. I mean, this was the plant with roots in hell. This was the plant that you smoked a few joints, and the next thing you'd be out in the street raping young women. Or you'd be growing abnormally large breasts, and soon you'd be mainlining heroin. But what? Wait a minute now. Was this stuff really maybe medicine? Could it actually be good for people? 
Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. How the language that we've used to describe this plant, this magical, mysterious, ancient plant, has changed just in my lifetime is phenomenal. We now have marijuana legal for either medical purposes or for all kinds of different purposes in over 27 states and the District of Columbia as well. In two states, Washington State and Colorado, it's legal for recreational purposes. So what what amazes me about this is how American democracy has worked. The people have spoken and trumped, no pun intended, (laughs) the ill-informed, brainwashed, idiotic people who created this insane war on drugs in the first place. Marijuana business, now the biggest, fastest growing business in, in, in the nation. People are making billions of dollars in this business. I spent eight years in prison for it. And there are a number of people who are still locked up to this day. Had I been sentenced in 1986 after the Omnibus Crime Control Act, when they put in the new sentencing guidelines, I would have received a mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole. I'd still be there instead of here talking to this enlightened audience. I'm not here to say that there is not a problem with drug abuse in this country. Of course there is. But the answer to that problem does not come with incarceration. It comes with education. And what we need to do is we need to take all that money that's wasted waging this ridiculous and absurd war on plants, and we need to reinvest that money in better educating our young people so that they will know, just say no, and understand what the pitfalls are of any of these substances. Thank you very much. It was uh, Richard Stratton, who was a marijuana dealer in the 70s and 80s. Interesting story. He, I think, hit on something very important, Corey, and it's something that you and I are trying to do, you and me are trying to do. It's to educate the public about uh, the medicinal benefits of cannabis. And, right. and Kelly mentioned the same thing. Once people understand this, once people understand the benefits of the plant, it doesn't have this demonic uh, overview of it that exactly. most people have today. Exactly. You know, I mean, we're raised, I was raised in a time where, you know, the, the big commercial with the egg in the fry pan, this is, this is your brain, this is your brain on marijuana, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah, uh, it was all about fear. And so people are, are brought up in all this BS right. about cannabis. Okay, that's the uh, program for uh, this week. We'll be back on Monday. Who do we have Monday? We have Tim Tipton who is a court-certified expert in cannabis and uh, medical marijuana. He's got a wealth of knowledge, a very, very interesting guy. Okay, and you have a public service announcement. I do. Cannabis Health Radio is listener-supported radio. Uh, To succeed in our mission to help people throughout the world, we rely on our listeners for contribution of any amounts. Contributions. If you'd like to assist us in our mission, please go to our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and make a donation. And we thank you in advance for doing that. Yes, we do. Uh, I'm Ian Jessup. And And I'm Corey Yelland. You're Corey Yelland. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back again next week. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio Podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.